to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we review COVID-19 and the effect that the Pfizer vaccine will have on Canadians. We're headed south, not to the U.S., but to the pelvic floor and all of the issues that can occur. Why, you might ask, is play important for children when it comes to learning, memory, and cognition? Well, we're going to talk to you about the play base. And is your partner cheating? Are you nervous about that? I review some signs like denial and both more and less sex because both may be a sign. Also, what about your relationship troubles? Are they normal in this pandemic? And finally, because you asked for it, the best male sex toys. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Well, if 2020 taught us anything, it taught us about things that matter. Your health. Your health is your wealth. And loneliness kills. So relationships matter. In a year characterized by masks physical distancing and lockdowns, we've all experienced our own version of this new normal. And it certainly has been worse for some than others. But with blue sky on the horizon, or is it in terms of the vaccine, it is out with the old and in with the new. And and we're actually bringing back uh, somebody old tonight. Well, he's not old, but he was... (laughs) A former, this is the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. I'm Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and host of this program. And um, what's old is new again, and that's Andrew. Andrew's back behind the boards. Good evening, Andrew. It's so strange. The last time I was here talking to you, it was the before times. It was pre-pandemic, wasn't it? It was when I could like go out and say hi to you, and I didn't have to be like a little bit worried about random things. And, you know, we didn't wear... Not that I have anything against wearing a mask. I, I do. Oh, I don't. <laughs> I don't love it. I mean, I, mean, but I don't I do love it. it, but I'm used to it now. And I, I, I feel weird if I leave the house without one. Like, I, it's like, now it's like my wallet or my keys. If I don't have it, I instantly just... Go back. Same. And I'm like, this is strange. I'm going to be stared at. And also, it's literally not allowed. Um, this is true. So back before it was mandated, uh, even then, I still kind of felt like even if it wasn't mandated, I felt like people would look at me if I didn't have a mask on. And I, then, and I it was agree. Like, you know what? This peer pressure really does work wonders. I felt naked without my mask and still do. Even if I get out of the car and I don't have the mask yet, I'm going to pay for the parking or something. Oh, yeah. I don't have the mask. I'm, you know, I'm freaking out a little bit, you know? Exactly. Like even like, you know, through the drive through when I pay for parking. Exactly. Um, you know, every single time that I may or may not interface with anyone who isn't me, I, hmm. it's on. Totally. And it's weird if it's not. I have a supply everywhere. Good for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Good for you. Yes, I do. It's so important to wear that mask. And we've seen the benefit of wearing a mask because the flu rates are down in Canada this year. That's for sure. So thanks so much, Andrew, for coming back and helping me out here th- on the Sunday Night Health Show. I think there were something like seven total like confirmed flu cases across the country so far. Oh, was it across the country or just British was Columbia? It, I, I, I'm not sure. It's one of those, it was but eight still. in British Columbia, but if it's, it's eight very in low. BC, that's yeah, still it's insane. Like, yeah, exactly. It's got to be under 50 across that is the country. insane. Well, we'll look up those numbers for you. Hopefully. I'm interested because I Me saw too. that number and my mind was blown. I was like, you know what? Maybe this mask wearing thing 
maybe like, you know, countries like Japan and South Korea, you know, we're ahead of the ball on this one. Yeah, know? yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And New Zealand had a very low rate as well. I think they had one. Holy um, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, if you'd like to be a part of the show tonight, feel free to give me a call or Andrew. The number to call is one 877 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. If you're shy, you can text me there as well or email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. We cover a variety of health subjects on this show. However, this show is not a replacement for a visit or a phone call to your doctor. And of course, these visits are virtual lately, unless you need to go to the emergency department and go ahead if you need to. Tonight in the program, we're talking about cheating partners. How can you tell? And also the COVID-19 vaccine delay. How bad is that going to be? Your pelvic floor, urinary tract infections, why it's important to get diagnosed and treated, relationship troubles, and the best you asked for it the best male sex toys. Yes, we talk sex on the program. Of course we talk sex. So put those kitties to bed, grab a cup of tea, your lover if you have one, because we've got lots to talk about. But right now... And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Oh, I remembered. Oh, you did. You did. Oh, it's all so coming good, back Andrew. to me. Oh, it's all Don't coming praise me yet. It's only been about four and a half minutes. You've still got <laughs> it a may lot not of time come back to, to me. It's been I a be- week. I believe in you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad somebody believes in me. I believe in this guy, though. He's on the line. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk joins us most Sunday evenings at this time. He's an assistant professor, Canada Research Chair at the University of Manitoba. He is also a contributor at Forbes, and uh, he is interested in, thank goodness, somebody's got to be interested in this, emerging viruses, COVID-19, Ebola, and outbreak prep and response. And, you know, I am so glad he's coming back to the program. Not only uh, do I want to ask him how we're faring across the country, but uh, I'm quite concerned about, and I knew it, I just knew it, you know, oh, there's a vaccine on the horizon, and you know what, we're all going to get vaccinated, and everything is going to be great by summer, but I just knew, no way, it's not going to be as smooth, and I'm an optimist, not going to run as smoothly as possible, and of course, we have heard that there is a quote-unquote temporary delay, which is going to chop Canada's deliveries of the Pfizer vaccine in half for four weeks, and I always double things like that. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening. How are you this evening? Uh, you know what? It, uh, <laughs> this past week has, uh, I bet. has been entertaining yet again. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, uh, 2021's off to a, a fantastic start. It, it certainly is. And, you know, how are we doing across the country COVID-wise? You know, it's so it's so difficult to to kind of gauge that anymore. And I say that because of the fact that we're going through ebbs and flows still. Uh, Manitoba certainly is, I think, bouncing back in the right direction, still a bit high. Here in Saskatchewan, certainly cases are are rising. Um, you know, Alberta and BC have been going in the right direction. Ontario and Quebec looks like they're turning the corner, um, you know, to, to some degree. But of course, now we have you know another variable or a few variables. That, that have been thrown at us with the variant. So I think that it's difficult to say from day to day how we are overall doing. I think more of it is trying to say, are we prepared for what, what is coming next? And are we in a better place than we were a month ago? 
Right. I've been worried about those variants, you know, the second I yeah. heard about them. I just just did it. I, I honestly, I am an optimistic person completely. But for this, I just felt the higher transmissibility, you know, the unknowns about it, the, the so many different variants from South Africa, from England, uh, the UK, you know, where it, it just has worried me. And now, so we have the vaccine. I have a sense that there's issues around logistics uh, and implementation, and now supply chain is uh, is affected. The temporary delay is going to chop Canada's deliveries of the Pfizer vaccine in half for four weeks. So I'm going to actually say that that probably we could probably read that as it chops it by 75 percent uh, for eight weeks. <laughs> yeah, that coming from an optimist. Uh, what are you, yeah, what are you, you thinking? Know, what's the effect in, uh, what's the effect on Canadians? Uh, well, listen, if we're looking at vaccines alone, without even taking into account the, the variants, um, you know, it, it, to me that we are at the situation right now of trying to say, okay, we, we knew that there at some point was likely going to be, um, you know, some delays in, in manufacturing or, or potential, uh, you know, time legs for getting vaccine. So what, what is our strategy to, to move forward? Is it to keep samples banked? Uh, or, or vaccine supply banked and still looking at the, the regular time frame. Was it going to be to try and get as many people vaccinated as possible and then have potentially a second de- uh, a delay in the second dosage? I think we're coming to some agreement on that. I think certainly globally we're, we're seeing more of a, an agreement in, in regards to what we're doing. The variants have me certainly on it. Um, you know, it's something that asked me recently how I felt. And, you know, listen, if I was on the scale of one to 10, I'm probably batting around a seven or an eight right now. And, and I think certainly when you look across the global community of, of folks that have been involved in this from the start and with other viruses, um, you get that general sense that this is a unique curveball. And we are trying to figure out as quickly as possible what this means when we don't necessarily have the time to, you know, to, to fully understand what it is. So we, we have to be anticipatory in so many ways. We certainly do. And, you know, we've heard of uh, unfair uh, distribution or unfair taking of the shots, you know, people jumping the queue and even others getting their shots, physicians actually getting their shots um, ahead of others and also in less of the amount of time uh, that they should have gotten that second shot. So we're going to see some cheating in this system, shockingly enough, for Canadians, because I typically think of Canadians as pretty honest. (laughs) Um, But, you know, what about uh, this, you know, the delivery of the vaccines to people? Has Canada figured out the best way to do that? I mean, I hear all, I don't hear a strategic plan, which concerns me. Yeah, you know, this certainly is a conversation that has been going on uh, in, in back channels, I think, in many different jurisdictions. And, and certainly, uh, you know, I've been privy to, to a few of those conversations. I, listen, I, I think that we uh, as a community are, are somewhat concerned because the fact was, that I think, when, when we first you know, start talking about distribution, our major concern was this idea of trying to maintain cold chain storage and, and you know, and trying to have, you know, uh, you know, cold chain storage at the, you know, at kind of the receiver end and what we were going to do in, in regards to uh, to underserved communities and how we we're going to do transportation. All of that has been met, I think, fantastically. We, we certainly have achieved the ability to get vaccines distributed to a, you know, a certain destination. The problem is, is that 
the vaccines themselves don't save lives. It's the vaccinations that save lives. So we're now faced again with this decision of saying, okay, what is the strategy to get vaccines out to people? And how do we do it in a matter that is going to provide us with the greatest protection in our community uh, to, to a rapidly changing situation? And I think that's where we haven't necessarily had the transparency. And I think part of that is because from region to region, certainly province to province, uh, they're, you know, these programs are being run independently. And that makes it more difficult when we think about this as, uh, from my own perspective, as a national health crisis. Um, I, I don't feel like we have that kind of unified approach to how we're doing this. And, and that certainly is going to make things difficult um, you know, for, for the near term and hopefully the long term we will be able to sort through some of these issues. I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like it's all about process and policy procedure and consistency and the, you know, the same types of healthcare professionals delivering it, um, you know, setting it up, planning it, implementing it, scaling it up. And I think it's really important that we scale it up, but I don't think we're going to be able to scale it up in the next month or two, uh, as previously thought. Uh, I'd like you to hang on the line if you don't mind. I wanted to talk to you about the World Health Organization conference that you attended recently and and um, what are all those brainiacs talking about <laughs> behind the scenes all 1700 of them um, with, uh, as you've said on Twitter anyway that uh, some of the brightest minds are dealing with this and so I'd love to learn more Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk is my guest. Dr. Kindrachuk, thanks for staying on the line. Absolutely. All right. We have a question from a listener. Lindsay is on the line. Good evening, Lindsay. Good evening. Did you have a question? Yes, I have a question for the doctor. If I had COVID-19, what can I catch it again? Oh, so this is such a complicated question. Listen, we... When we look at the numbers, um, we certainly have seen reports of people that have been reinfected. Um, and those certainly have made headlines, and, and rightfully so, because they, they are important. But when we look at the total number of those reinfections, which you know are, are probably within the network of a dozen or a few dozen uh, that have been reported as compared to the you know, tens of millions of, of cases that, that we've seen, it is a really, really low percentage of people. We, we don't fully understand why they occur. Uh, but certainly the data so far suggests to us that there's at least some level of immunity in people that have been infected previously. We just don't know how long that lasts for. Oh, I see. Okay, so it, in other words, it can, um, after a few months, I could probably catch it again. Well, you know, right now our hope is that some of the, the most recent data suggested that people out to, I think it was 8 to 12 months, still oh. appear to have protective immunity. Um, but, of course, that's because the virus has only been around for, for that period of time, at least in, in North America and Europe. So that's really the only data that we have or the, or the longest data that we have. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Doctor. I appreciate your answer. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. We also have Derek on the line. Good evening, Derek. Hi, Maureen. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? That's good. Um, I'm not doing too bad. Uh, I do have a quick question for Dr. Kinderchuk. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I am wondering, um, have there been any documented cases of uh, someone testing positive after they've received the vaccine? Oh, so that's a great question. So I have not seen any so far. Um, and most of that, the reason being is that people that were at least in the phase three trials, um, if they still had a positive test 
um, they were excluded. And I believe right now the recommendation has been for people that um, have had COVID that I think the, the wait time is three months now or 90 days. Um, but that still, I think, is contingent on them being able to, to test negative. Okay. All right. That's great. That answers my question. Thanks so much, Derek. And we have Mary on the line. Good evening, Mary. Hi. I want to ask the doctor what he thinks life will look like in long-term care after the vaccine. Great question. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, listen, you know, my, my gestalt on all this, Mary, is that I, I'm hoping that, you know, clearly there will be um, decreased, uh, you know, decreased illnesses and, and decreased fatalities in long-term care facilities with, with COVID. Um, my greater hope, to be honest with you, is that prior to vaccination, that we would figure out how to build a better uh, containment or, or countermeasure strategy in long-term care facilities across the, the country, because we know how prone they are to, uh, to, to this virus. The, the unfortunate reality is, you know, we, I've been waiting for that for a year, and I, I think we've still done a, a deplorable job at, at doing that. Um, but I'm hoping that, that the vaccine will, will at least bring some sunlight back to, uh, to, to the people that, that are in uh, those facilities. Dr. Kinderchuk, uh, we're, we're up against the clock. Thanks, everyone, for your questions. I know you attended a World Health Organization um, meeting recently and, and talking about the variants, but uh, we'll have to get you back next week uh, to talk about that, if you don't mind. Thanks so much for joining the program this evening. Thank you, Maureen. Take care. You're very welcome. You too. Okay, coming up next, we're heading south. And I don't mean the United States of America. I mean your pelvic floor. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. She is a registered physiotherapist with 25 years experience in pelvic floor physiotherapy. She owns her own pelvic health clinic in Kelowna, British Columbia, and treats conditions such as urinary and fecal incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse in women, pelvic pain, and sexual health issues for all genders. She frequently treats men for conditions such as urinary incontinence, after prostate surgery, erectile dysfunction, pain with sex, prostatitis, and Peyronie's disease. Corrine Wade is passionate about myth-busting and breaking the taboos around topics such as Poo, pee, and sex. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Corrine. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. Oh, good. That, that's a lot of uh, coverage there. <laughs> that's a <laughs> lot of conditions. <laughs> well, the pelvic floor affects, I, I, I'm kind of biased. I tell my patients the pelvic floor affects pretty much everything, your mental, emotional, and physical health. So it's all those things. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, these issues, you, you do some myth busting um, and, you know, so many people um, have secrecy and shame around these issues because we're really taught, you know, not too much about these issues and, and different problems can occur at different times of life. For example, um, you know, women after they have a baby, if they've had a vaginal delivery, um, typically they may experience urinary incontinence, but nobody ever tells them. Um, no. Yeah. We yeah. And even being a pelvic floor physio, you know, I think physios, we think we're immune. But when I had my first child 15 years ago, I had significant fecal incontinence. 
uh, and I tell all my patients. So I, I try to tell them to make them more comfortable. I say, you know what? I was pooping my pants too. So <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Yeah, but it, it, we need to break the taboos. We certainly do. And and people think they are alone on their island, that, that nobody else has experienced this because there's some degree of shame and, and embarrassment associated with these issues. Um, so let's just kind of go in, in order. Um, you know, but I want to start with the men <laughs> first. Yeah. Because we typically talk about pelvic floor Kegel exercises for women, but actually uh, men leak urine too, uh, much like women do. And men also experience overactive bladder, but they, they leak urine for different reasons and at different times of life. But um, so tell me a little bit about what you hear from men who present to your clinic um, who face these issues. How devastating is it for them? Oh, I think it's so devastating. And, you know, not to take away from the women that are going through the same thing, but I think as women, we're more used to wearing pads for our menstrual cycle. We're more used to talking to our girlfriends. So what I see with men, and the research shows that men with incontinence have four times the amount of depression. Absolutely. Four times. Yeah. And, And especially during COVID, that's devastating because, you know, especially when COVID first hit, as we know, a lot of the bathrooms were not open to to anyone to change their pads or underwear or whatever they had. So I, I feel for men, especially because there's so much shame and they want they want to be confident and they you know, there's that bravado and, and masculinity and for them to have to put a pad on is devastating. Um and the smell. Right. And the laundry. Right? And just Yeah, and they don't wear a purse, right? So they don't have anywhere to put the pads to take them into the bathroom. And as you know, most male bathrooms do not have appropriate receptacles or garbage bins for the pads. So that's a whole other topic. But I think there's so much shame and... um, uh, embarrassment, even more so than women. For sure. Of course, they can carry a man purse, but who wants to carry a man purse <laughs> filled with pads? Um, you know, it is it is so embarrassing. You're absolutely correct. Um, and do you find that your male patients don't think that there's any treatment for them? Do they feel yeah. like, um, you know, this is it? Is that hence yeah. the depression? And I, think it's, I think the amount of incontinence is underreported. They're afraid to talk to their doctors. Um, but then, secondly, they don't know where to go um, for help once they have the incontinence. And as we know, especially after prostate surgery, I think most men are so happy to have survived the cancer that That's then right. to be to be um, having this incontinence to deal with it's devastating. And I think it's more devastating than the erectile dysfunction um, because if you're leaking urine and and feeling un. Uh, sexy to say to put it lightly I mean if you feel like you're smelly and wet and you're not feeling sexy you're not going to want to have intercourse with your partner anyway so I feel like the incontinence is the first thing the first barrier that has to be dealt with oh I I couldn't agree with you more um you know and the other thing I want to say is men typically don't you know they don't run off to their health care provider or their physician um for every little issue. They tend not to seek the health care uh, that women no. seek. So that's another issue as well. And they're so, not telling their friends. Like no. They're not going out for coffee and talking about, oh, hee hee hee, I, I leaked when I was doing jumping jacks. Like they don't, like women do that, but men don't do that. They really hide it. Exactly. And it. Exactly. So 
is there hope for men who leak urine out there, um, whether it be from stress urinary incontinence after a prostate cancer uh, surgical, you know, a, a nerve sparing prostatectomy, which is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, yeah. Is there treatment for men who leak urine? There is. And, you know, I think what's amazing is there's so much new research. Uh, Dr. Joe Milios out of Australia just in the last year has amazing research on, number one, doing preoperative pelvic floor physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. So getting getting these men, as soon as they're diagnosed, get them to a, a, a registered pelvic floor physiotherapist that's comfortable and trained in treating men, just like if they were going for a knee or a hip operation. Mm-hmm. We have way, I mean, we already know that for other parts of the body. So number one, if they could go see a physiotherapist at least for a couple treatments to find their pelvic floor muscles, beef up their strength, then when they go for their surgery post-op, they're already, they're, they're going to have such better results. And, and Dr. Joe Milios has proved with her research that at 12 weeks post-op, uh, so she saw her patients preoperatively, postoperatively. So she was getting her men, 74% men after um, prostate surgery, dry compared to only 43% of men doing a regular protocol where they weren't seeing physios before surgery. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and there's a number of different uh, devices as well for men. Um, yes. There's one in particular called the Contino, which is a, a small silicon device that's inserted into the urethra. Have you been um, using those or treating yes, patients? Yes, I love the Contino because sometimes, like you say, sometimes even with nerve-sparing surgery, there is more damage than, you know, sometimes the cancer is more invasive and, and the surgeon does the best they can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have, you know, and there's a lot of active men in their 50s and 60s who are leaking urine even after trying Kegels after surgery. And so the Contino is a a wonderful device. It's easy to use. It's comfortable. It's discreet. So I have men that say, oh my goodness, like now I can go traveling. I can go run my marathon. I can go I can go stay at so-and-so's house and I don't feel like I'm going to ruin their bed by my pad leaking onto, you know, the bed. Um, And I don't smell. Wow, that's incredible. Um, you know, something I want to switch over to women uh, here quickly, women who leak urine. Um, you know, many women think that leaking urine is normal. Do you, do you face that in your uh, pelvic oh, yes. floor Oh, yes, I think that's clinic? a major myth. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's common, but it's not good. <laughs> this and, is true. And, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even one little drop is not good. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and you know what? Women like to suffer sometimes, too. They're just like, oh, I can put up with it. No big deal. You know, I delivered a 13 pound baby vaginally, you know, and um, so I, a little leakage of urine is nothing, but it'll get worse if it's not treated. Is that correct? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And it's like any other muscle group in the body um, that no muscle works in isolation. So, what I tell women is Kegels in isolation are not the are not the cure and that's why it's so important to see a trained pelvic floor physiotherapist that can assess them properly number one to make sure they're doing their kegels properly um, but also there's associated muscle groups that work with the pelvic floor so the diaphragm and the glutes and the hip rotators so when i i assess a patient i assess all of those muscles to give them more bang for their buck so kegels alone sometimes are not the answer i i love that you've said that because a lot of uh, women, that's all they will have tried is Kegel exercises. We we just have about 30 seconds left, but, but are Kegels good for men and for women? Yes, 
Definitely. And for sexual function, of course. <laughs> uh, so again, I say poo, pee, sex. <laughs> so we need pelvic floor muscles for men and women for adequate bowel, pelvic floor and sexual function, optimal orgasm and sensation. Sounds wonderful. So, and quickly, your website to uh, for people to get in touch with you? Uh, yes, I'm at carephysio.com and that's K-A-R-E. P-H-Y-S-I-O.com and the Contino device is at mycontino.com. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You know, it seems that lots of patients these days are experiencing urinary tract infections. And you know what? It's not just women, although urinary tract infections are far more common in women, but men can also develop a urinary tract infection or a UTI. Women are at greater risk, in fact, of developing a UTI than are men. So a urinary tract infection is an infection in any part of your, your urinary system. So your kidneys, your ureter, ureters, which is the tube that goes from your kidneys to your bladder, and then your urethra, which is the tube where urine passes out from your bladder. Most infections involve the lower urinary tract. You know, people think urinary tract infection and they think no big deal, but that is not the case. Urinary tract infections can actually lead to urosepsis, an overwhelming infection in women, and they can also lead to sepsis in men as well, especially if they are uh, uh, an additional, if there's another underlying condition, such as kidney stones, for example. So it can be extremely dangerous. Urinary tract infections don't always cause symptoms, but when they do, the symptoms you might experience are a strong, persistent urge to urinate. But you know what? You might get that symptom with other conditions as well. A burning sensation when you void or passing frequent small amounts of urine, urine that appears cloudy, urine that appears red, bright pink, or cola-colored, that is a sign that there's blood in the urine. And oftentimes when there's blood in the urine, it may be a sign of a urinary tract infection. Or if your urine has a strong scent. You can also experience pelvic pain in women, especially in the center of the pelvis and around the area of the pubic bone. And, and oftentimes UTIs are overlooked or mistaken for other conditions in older adults. And, you know, conditions like prostatitis or um, uh, other or kidney uh, disease or even bladder cancer, for example, or urethritis. Um, but, you know, there's um, oftentimes people will get recurrent urinary tract infections, so repeated urinary tract infections. You will see urinary tract infections in people who are not emptying their bladder properly. And so that may occur if you have a spinal cord injury, for example, or it may occur if you have a prolapse. So if your bladder has fallen down from its space that where it's meant to be if you are a woman. Um, urinary tract infections occur because bacteria has entered the urinary tract through the urethra. A woman's urethra is shorter, and that's why urinary tract infections are more common. But then that bacteria begins to multiply. Typically, the urinary system is designed to keep out those microscopic invaders, but um, sometimes those defenses will fail. And when that happens, bacteria takes hold and can actually go into a full-blown infection in the urinary tract. And so some of the risk factors are are being a a woman, quite frankly, because of the female anatomy, as I mentioned, the shorter urethra. Sexual activity in women 
um, you know, that can actually lead to more UTIs than women who are not sexually active. And also having a new sexual partner may increase your risk as well. Certain types of birth control um, may put a woman at higher risk. And also women who use spermicidal agents may be at greater risk as well. Wiping front to back is perfect. Okay, (laughs) what I was going to say is a risk factor is wiping back to front. You'd be amazed how many people wipe back to front. Um, So it's always uh, best practice to, after you avoid, to wipe from front to back, ladies. After menopause, there is a decline in the circulating estrogen, and that causes changes in the urinary tract, and that makes you more vulnerable to infection. And so for women who get repeated or recurrent urinary tract infection after the age of 65, that can be very problematic. Um, And so because the estrogen has decreased, so you need to to... Increase the localized estrogen in the urogenital tract, and that's done through cream or a ring in the vagina. Many women fear estrogen, but this is low dose, and it's localized, and it's topical, and it's very good for your vagina. It will also help with vaginal dryness as well. And in fact, the condition is called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And uh, But, you know, also um, men can get urinary tract infections as well, and that can be because of a blockage in the urinary tract. That can happen for women as well. Kidney stones or an enlarged prostate can trap urine in your bladder, and that increases your risk of urinary tract infections. If you have a suppressed immune system for, for one reason or another, like diabetes, will impair your immune system. That's why it's important to stay healthy and, and eat a low glycemic index diet. Um, the uh, using catheters. So sometimes people who can't urinate on their own and use a catheter to uh, to urinate may have an increased risk of urinary tract infections as well. And those are people who are hospitalized, people who have neurological problems uh, that makes it very difficult to control their ability to urinate. Um, you may have had a recent urinary procedure that could have led to um, because because it's invasive, it could lead to urinary tract infection as well. So some of the complications of a UTI are that it can become recurrent. You can get permanent kidney damage from an acute or chronic kidney infection because of an untreated UTI. And the treatment for urinary tract infection is a course of antibiotics. You need a culture and sensitivity. First, they can dipstick your urine. So if they see leukocytes or maybe nitrites in the urine, all urine, because urine has nitrogen, nitrogen is in the form of nitrates, and then it converts to nitrites when there is an infection. It doesn't always mean that you have an infection if you have nitrites in your urine, but it may be a marker for it. Um, pregnant women um, may also be at greater risk of UTIs, but they pregnant women may also be at risk for delivering low birth weight or premature babies. So uh, men may have strictures in the urethra, and that can be from recurrent urethritis, And um, we see that with gonococcal urethritis as well. It can be associated with a UTI or urinary tract infection can be associated with sexually transmitted infection as well. But, you know, the thing is urinary tract infection, this is the biggest danger, can actually lead to sepsis. And that is life-threatening or potentially life-threatening. It's a life-threatening complication 
of an infection, especially if the infection works its way up to your urinary tract to your kidney. So how do you prevent UTIs? Drink plenty of liquids, especially water. Water is your best friend. I had a patient say to me, well, what is the lubricant for your bladder? It's like water is your best lubricant. Um, There are bladder irritants. I've probably spoken about those on the show in the past, but they are coffee, tea, chocolate, citrus, spicy foods, um, anything like anything that is good is bad. So I have a whole list of those. Uh, you can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, if you'd like me to send you the list. Um, as I mentioned earlier, wipe from front to back. Empty your bladder soon after intercourse. The, the, the evidence is a little sketchy on this one. Um, you know, there is actually no evidence to support that voiding afterwards um, after sex will reduce your incidence of urinary tract infection. But you know what? I'm not going to tell a woman not to do that if it works for her. But it's also a good idea to drink a full glass of water to help flush out that bacteria after having sex. And you want to avoid potentially irritating feminine products like deodorant sprays or other douches and powders in the genital area because they can all irritate your urethra. And, you know, if it's your birth control method, speak to your doctor about changing that birth control method as well. So those are ways to prevent. But actually, the way to treat it is um, through, uh, you know, after it's been analyzed and they've grown bacteria in the lab, um, they may have looked inside your bladder with a scope, but um, a simple infection is uh, is treated, a simple urinary tract infection is treated with antibiotics. Things like Bactrim and Septra, Monurol, Macrodantin and Macrobid and Keflex, to name a few. Um, anyhow, some people need a daily low dose uh, to prevent that. But, but you know what? Get to the root cause of why you're experiencing a urinary tract infection. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thanks so much for being here with me. I think this next subject is going to be extremely interesting to parents and uh, grandparents, not to mention teachers and guidance counselors. Frances Fishman is the founder and owner of The Playbase. She is a board-certified behavior analyst with her master's in education in developmental psychology and education. With over 12 years' experience in behavior modification in the home, community, and educational settings, as well as being a mother of three, she has developed a skill set and a perspective that has allowed her tremendous success with her team and client base. And she joins me on the line from Toronto and this is Francis Fishman. Good evening, Francis. Good evening. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much. I think uh, at any given time in life, especially around education, but more so in a pandemic, your services are extremely welcome. I think we're all living under highly stressful conditions, and we may not realize the impact of that on children's education, especially with learning at home or learning in the classroom. Tell me a little bit about the Playbase. So the Playbase is a company that offers one-to-one services for children with behavioral needs. Um, some of them might have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, some ADHD, and some may not have a diagnosis at all. And we support children in the school setting, in the home setting, and in the community. So we're often inside of schools as we are right now, so long as we're allowed to be. We're right now only in daycares in Toronto as schools are shut down. And we're providing services to allow children to adapt to the social environment, to learn um, with their peers that are their developmental stage or their age. 
So um, right now, the services are definitely in need. That's for sure. I'm sure they are. So tell me a little bit about, this is play-based learning effectively. And and in schools, traditionally, we have teacher-based learning. It's more teacher-centric um, as opposed mm-hmm. to child-centric. So tell me a little bit about play-based learning and why that is beneficial for our kids. Well, the play-based learning happens mainly when we're pulling children outside of the classroom or when there is a play opportunity in the school setting or in the home setting. Um, And this is really important because children actually learn primarily through play. Some of our children that we work with, we have to teach them how to play and how to engage socially with their play, Um, whereas others, we're teaching life skills and we're teaching um, skills like self-advocacy through play. Um, And it's the most important way for children to play because it's the way that they test the rules of the world. It's the way that they test, you know, all these, they're like little scientists. They're always trying to figure out what if I say this or what if I do this, what happens? And through play, it's a safe way for them to learn about, you know, the ins and outs of the world, the social dynamics of how, you know, our world actually works. And it's through play with a therapist that provides a really safe opportunity and then to generalize that with their peers and amongst other people across different settings that then allows them to use those skills that they learn in real life scenarios. So, uh, you know, we got to, even before the pandemic, we got to a place where everything was organized for kids. We really lost the sense of free play. There were even play dates arranged by parents at a particular time. We, we'd lost that sense of just get out in the backyard and, and do your thing, you know, just uh, climb on the jungle gym or play in the sandbox, whatever. But everything had to be overseen. There was this fear that, um, you know, there's a, through the media, basically, there's a fear of, of kidnapping. But in a pandemic, there's much more control now because kids are at home, they're with their siblings, uh, they may not be allowed to see other kids or, you know, if they do, it's got to be distance and, and with masks. So how does uh, play-based learning, how does that help in terms of the structure in which we're living today? Well, I think play-based learning allows to alleviate some of that stress and anxiety that is being felt around the world. It also allows for a form of expression about around that fear and allows for exploration around that. So I always, always, always encourage parents, so long as they can, to allot at least 15 minutes a day to just play with their kids. Just get down on the ground, whatever it is that they're interested in. It could be a cardboard box. It could be a puzzle. It could be their favorite toy. It could just be singing and dancing with you. Whatever play is, it allows for a release of emotion. It allows for a connection. It allows to work through some of those things that are stressing them out, like, why can't I see my friends? You know, and, and this gives them an opportunity to express themselves in a playful way. And play is a huge outlet for form of expression. And it can be done in so, like, the really what I always say is that you're limited only by your own imagination. Like wherever your imagination can go, that's as far as play can go anywhere it, you want to take it from outer space to Spider-Man to, to dance parties to, you know, pretending to be anything and everyone that you can imagine to be from animals to, to anything. So play really allows for, it's very therapeutic naturally for us, even for an adult to get down and play with a child is therapeutic for us to get out of our heads 
and into this mo- into this moment with our children. And so I think play has been a really key part of allowing for parents and children or adults and children to connect and to express part of what they're feeling. And one of the things that I'm also finding even in schools is like play is limited because you know, part of play is learning to share, but you're not really allowed to share anymore. And so we're actually limiting our play skills because we're not allowed to share a toy necessarily with the peer in our classroom. So one of the things that I've had to do as a consultant at a school is find safe ways for kids to play with each other where they're not feeling unsafe. So maybe instead of playing with a toy, they're going to play soccer with a ball and then we're going to find a different way to play with this ball where people are feeling safer to engage. Um, So it's been, yes, this pandemic has caused a lot of limitations and stress and anxiety and fear, but I think that play has been a nice release, especially for the children to get outside and just breathe fresh air and to move their bodies and to kind of set free some of that stress that they're holding on to, that tension that's sitting in their gut. Completely and totally, and I imagine that it helps their mental health as well. Does play-based learning, uh, as opposed to academic type of learning, help with uh, a child, help a child to develop self-confidence and and motivation and cognitive skills? Absolutely. I think that that is the groundwork to what we're doing at the play-base. We, like, our goal at the play-base is to provide our clients with skills But more so than that is to give them the confidence to be able to use it independently. Like that is the ultimate goal is to watch our clients do something totally on their own, independent, with confidence, use their voice or however it is that they're communicating to do the things that they're learning to do. And so play is is the safest way to kind of test those things out and then to give yourself that confidence. So I can do that. And wow, I, think, I didn't know I could do that. Exactly. And I think that's really helpful, especially for kids who are experiencing anxiety. And more than ever before, anxiety is on the rise in our kids. But I think play yeah. is such a healthy way to actually uh, dispel some of that anxiety or help to eliminate or reduce um, some of that anxiety. Because academic programs can actually be quite stressful um, for kids, especially before kindergarten. <laughs> yes. Yes, academic programs often can cause stress, especially for someone who doesn't feel that they are the same as their peers. If they, if they are so aware that their peers are learning differently or coping differently, or they believe, they perceive that their peers are learning differently or coping differently, that then causes a lot of stress. And it's the play that allows them to gain that confidence. And a lot of the academic skills that we teach, we teach through play. We like, I like to say we trick kids into learning that they don't realize because they're not sitting at a table and writing things down all the time. They don't necessarily realize that they're learning. And then you go, you just did that. You spelled cat and you had no idea that you spelled cat. And um, without saying you had no idea that you spelled cat, we'd be like, wow, you can really spell and you can read. And they're like, wow, I can. And the next time their teacher says, can you read this word? They hear that voice. I can really spell and I can read. I can read this. And how was it done? It wasn't done necessarily sitting at a table, but it may have been like a scavenger hunt where we found the little letters, and then we formed different words with the letters, and then we had to read the words together without making a child feel that pressure they normally would feel in a classroom setting. And and we certainly put uh, pressure on kids to uh, succeed today. Francis, if somebody wanted uh, to get in touch with you or learn more about the play base, how would they do that? Well, they can find our website, which is www.theplaybase.com. 
You can find us on Facebook at The Playbase and as well on Instagram at The Playbase. And anyone, feel free to email me, Francis, F-R-A-N-C-E-S, at theplaybase.com or info at theplaybase.com anytime. I'm happy to answer any questions, any and all questions around child's mental health, behavior, um, education, all of that. I would be happy to help. Thank you so much, Francis. Thanks for your great work. And uh, I'll, we'll get you back on to learn more about play-based learning because it's, it's a vast subject and very important one today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. You're welcome. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thanks for tuning in tonight. You know, I had a patient present this week and she had said that she keeps getting this phone call from somebody who says to her, my boyfriend is not interested in you. I just want you to know that. And she was freaking out. She has no idea who this is. Uh, The person uh, has a private number that comes up. And she's she's married. She has absolutely no interest in anybody, but she got so anxious. But it made me think about people who might be afraid or may fear that their husband, wife, spouse, partner is cheating on them because it can actually make people crazy. So I think it's important to talk about just How do you know? Call it intuition. Call it a sinking feeling in your gut. But there is a knowledge that something isn't quite right. And guess what? I hate to say this, but if you suspect that your partner is cheating on you, nine times out of 10, they are. Something could really be off. But it may or may not be infidelity. You know, there is that odd chance that uh, that it isn't, in fact. But uh, when a partner is stepping out, typically their attention is elsewhere. Their attention is not on you. And there are some signs, and it may be not only that they're not having as much sex with you, it could be that they're having sex way more often because they want to throw you. They want to send you a curveball. And um, they're overcompensating basically for their cheating, lying, uh, scandalous behavior by having more sex with you than they normally would. Or you may actually notice some uh, new tricks and, and tips and techniques in the bedroom. In, in other words, it's important to focus on your sex life, your intimate life with your partner because if you notice a significant change, this could certainly mean that something is not quite right in the bedroom. As you know, I've taught you over the years that intense chemistry does actually fade away. Uh, Love flies out the window, if you will, uh, through the honeymoon phase or after the honeymoon phase, which can be about 18 months to four years. But you typically get a deeper connection, more emotional vulnerability. There is that desire to share your inner world with each other. And and that's how you build that long-lasting intimacy. But when infidelity is present... That desire to connect on that level, you know what I mean, is much, much less. And so there's less desire to be curious about you, about your life, how are things going. They may not have paid that much attention to you before, and they're paying even less now. Or you may not have paid 
enough attention to your partner. And so therefore they were seeking that attention elsewhere. I said to somebody the other day, uh, you know, a woman can spot a vulnerable man from a mile away. And she said, that's me. I can. I can tell when they're sad and when they're vulnerable and when they're feeling lonely. And so this is something that is critical. If you or your partner are feeling uh, lonely in your marriage, in your relationship, this is a risk factor. This is a risk factor for going outside of the marriage or the relationship. Uh, Another way to find out if uh, your partner, spouse, whatever, whomever is uh, cheating on you Uh, When you bring it up, do you get a huge overreaction of opposition? Is it like deny, deny, deny? Uh, If you get that, there may be cause for concern. And in fact, a partner, depending on their emotional stability or or what's going on, they may actually shift the blame to you. They may, in fact, gaslight you. They may become defensive or start name-calling. It can actually lead to fireworks and not the kind of fireworks that you want to have. Um, You know, if they're protesting, typically there is usually something to protest about. As Shakespeare once said, thou dost protest too much. Beware of that. But keep in mind that these behaviors are not always a sign that there is an affair afoot. And remember, it's so easy to have an affair today, but it's also because of social media, of course, and and the internet. And even in a pandemic, I think that behavior actually increases because that's all they can do. And, And people get very aroused through sexting and texting. But these signs don't necessarily mean that an affair is afoot, uh, but it's an opportunity to raise your concerns. But the important thing is, is to get back down to having that important conversation with your partner. And, you know, they say if you're not having sex in your relationship, uh, you know, somebody else will. Uh, If you're not having sex with your partner, somebody else will have sex with your partner or may because the needs aren't being met. And so... You know, there are ways to get needs met and people justify it. They actually think, well, you know what, if I were having sex in my relationship or having more sex, as you know, I deal a lot in sexless marriage. And so and that's typically what has happened is that, um, you know, the, the flames went out. The, there's just nothing but embers left. And uh, there's been a change in intimacy. And that can be a large sign that something has changed in your relationship. And so people are looking to get their needs met elsewhere, outside of the relationship. Know that it is a risk. Denial is a drug. And a lot of people will say, I mean, I was, I was reminded this week with a patient and I was um, saying how, you know, so many patients, in particular, so many women will tell me in their sexless marriage that they haven't had sex for wait for it, three years, four years, two years, 10 years. But they always say, but my husband is so patient. No, they're actually not. They're not that patient. Um, So it's very important that the intimacy, that connection, that playfulness in the bedroom is front and center in your relationship. Um, You know, because if it's not... You may find your spouse heading out to buy new clothes. Maybe they're losing weight. Maybe they are pounding the pavement a little bit to get in shape. Maybe they're happier than they've ever been before. These can all all be signs of a cheating spouse. And guess what? No one's a cheater 
until they are. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You know, I get this question so often, and quite frankly, I forget week to week. But I thought last week, no, I'm doing it next week. I am doing it for the boys out there, for the men who are asking for uh, me to shed some light on some sex toys for men. You hear me talk about the womanizer all the time. The best thing you can give to a woman is a womanizer and not in the flesh, but fleshlight is a good one for you guys. Um, a womanizer used to be associated with pain, and now it's associated with pleasure. It is a clitoral stimulation device or a clitoral suckling device, and that's where most women will experience, uh, will be able to experience an orgasm through clitoral stimulation or clitoral suckling. But anyway, enough about the ladies, right, guys? It, I am focused on you. I am laser-focused on you. And what are some of the best sex toys for men, whether you are with a partner or, quite frankly, riding solo, because that's okay. But let's start off with the basics, the penile ring set. Uh, you can play mix and match. There's a set of four um, by Paliqueth, and uh, these particular, they are silicone rings. They don't vibrate or anything, but sometimes sensation isn't derived from the fancy bells and whistles. It's kind of do-it-yourself, if you know what I'm saying. It's important uh, to prostate massage. So this one's from a, a health perspective, of course. This whole show is about health. Um, so, But if you are interested or your partner is interested in motorized prostate and perineum stimulation, the Fancy is for you. And it's a simple, affordable massager with nine speeds. So uh, that's a good thing. Uh, there's also something called the XR Brands. It's a vibrating head teaser, and this is for more adventuresome people. It's a mechanism that sends vibrations through the glands or the head of your penis. There's a remote control. You can do it to yourself. You can leave the chosen intensity of teasing up to a partner for a little bit of submissive stimulation. Um, but it's it's kind of, I, I will say, I've heard from people it's a little bit on the flimsy side. Um, there's also something, and, and these are pretty ex- inexpensive items, so um, if it's particularly expensive, I will let you know. Um, but uh, there's something I want to mention. It is called the Sensation Swirl Blowjob Stroker, or Blow-Yo. Uh, it's from lovehoney.com. It's about $30. It's for the orally inclined, and it is designed to feel like an actual mouth. And so you can use it on yourself. It's great for couples where one of you loves receiving but the other one is not that keen on giving. Uh, there's always the uh, Easy Egg Six Pack by Tenga. Uh, those are around $30 as well. Um, sometimes good things do come in small packages, as they say. These are masturbation eggs. I remember I gave these out a few years ago on the program, and um, they were wildly popular. <laughs> anyway, all sorts of... Um, uh, difference. They these these they're elastic. These eggs are kind of like elastic. They come pre-lubricated, and they have uh, a variety of textures uh, for uh, added stimulation and uh, just a little different level of pleasure. Um, I also do not want to forget to mention the fabulous, the absolutely fabulous. It's been around for a while. The Fleshlight. Well, there's now a Fleshlight Turbo Blue Ice Blowjob Simulator. It's uh, probably the in, the most famous of any sex toy out there. Um, and uh, it's basically a, a masturbation tool, but uh, it pretty much gets the job done. 
Um, so the Fleshlight is great. It, it used to be super expensive, but the price has come down significantly. You can get it on Amazon, and it's around $75. Uh, what else have we got for you, boys? Um, we've got the Helix Sin Trident Anal Prostate Massager. Uh, because vibrations can be too much sometimes. And this device is um, on Amazon as well. It costs around $70. There is a something called a Manta. Uh, quite frankly, it looks a little scary, but, uh, but it's not. It's a penis toy, and it is uh, intended to make masturbation or stimulation controlled by your partner feel incredibly pleasurable. It's battery powered. It has battery powered vibrations, a ribbed design, and uh, you can certainly have a little fun with that. Um, I'd like somebody to send me the Pulse 3 stimulator. It's the Hot Octopus. It's about $150. I haven't, I, I'm not actually familiar with this particular one. It's a sleeve that pulses and oscillates uh, to upgrade male masturbation. Did we think we could do that? <laughs> Apparently we can. Um, it's the been dubbed the world's first guy braider. Okay, I like it. Anyhow, I, I'm going to ask the company to send me some and so I can give them out to you on the air. What else have we got here? There's lots of uh, prostate massagers. Um, don't forget lube. That's always fun. Um, you know, to add to the situation that can increase the stimulation for you. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of toys. It's, uh, you know, it's about exploration. It's about, um, you know, ensuring that you are asking for what you want. Uh, it's talking, it's communication, it's not being shy. And it's, you know, it, it really gets back to that, that communication in terms of um, what you deserve as well and, and what you want, especially in a relationship or if you're not in a relationship, you know, it's an okay thing to go for even in a pandemic. And there's lots of different ways that we can do that. 2020 showed us that online love is real and, and it can certainly happen. And, you know, it can be built up so much uh, in, in such a much better fashion because you actually get to know a person. There's a lot more communication and that can build intimacy and it can help you to bond uh, with somebody. And, you know, oftentimes I get this, these, this question about, well, if I bring sex toys into the bedroom, does that mean that my partner um, isn't good enough or my partner feels less than because I'm bringing a sex toy into the bedroom? You know, how do I broach that subject? Um, you know, and it, and it is about that closeness, that excitement, that desire, that arousal, and and talking about that, and you know, and just how great you feel. You know, it's very important that your mental health be in tip top shape. You be in tip top shape as well. Um, you know, and that's through great food and healthy food, nutrition, exercise, staying in shape. Um, you know, it's, these are tough times. These are really tough times. We've been through a lot uh, over the past 10 months or so. And, you know, it's been traumatic for many people. They have lost jobs and loved ones and lives that they knew before. Some have lost wives and some have lost husbands and partners because they couldn't take it. They couldn't be in a relationship 24-7 with somebody. It actually increased the turmoil that was pre-existing. 
And so these are really difficult times and never before has intimacy and, and sexuality and sex and pleasure been so important. And we really need to talk about it. And you actually need to talk about it uh, in your relationship. It, it's, it so often goes undiscussed. It's the elephant in the room. And, it, and of course, in these times when we are cleaning everything, wiping it all down, wearing masks, taking care of other people, not able to see them, missing our loved ones, feeling lonely, yet we're together, together, together with our partners, our spouses, and it can get to the, talk about same old, same old, um, you know, and so it's really important that you spice up your life, whether it be your daily life or your life back to the bedroom, because that is so important. And that equates to better sleep, more fun, happier people, uh, people who have more energy, people who are engaged. So it's a very holistic approach to getting to having that intimacy in a relationship and actually having sex. As you know, I do a lot of work around sexless marriages. It's a bit of an oxymoron. People think that, oh, all the married people are having sex, but that is certainly not the case, unfortunately. Sadly enough, it is not the case. And uh, so many, many uh, couples, whether they be married or not, living together or apart, are not having sex. It seems to be such an issue. And the reasons are varied and wide. Somebody asked me today, in fact, why Why is that? Why don't married couples have sex? And, I, you know, have you got all day? Uh, it starts with marrying the wrong person, shame, embarrassment, body image issues, lack of communication, uh, fear, um, you know, just being exhausted, depleted. If we weren't depleted, before the pandemic, we certainly are now. And that really equates to your life in the bedroom. And your life in the bedroom is so important. And if you need to bring a sex toy into the bedroom, male, female, they, other, you know what? Go for it because it's only going to up the pleasure and make you feel that much better. And quite frankly, that is what I'm all about, making you feel that much better. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.